everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. With so many uncertainties and sudden changes right now, life can feel, well, pretty confusing, whether in your career or even for an entire business. In times like these, it'd be so nice to have a consultant whose career embodies her advice. Fortunately for us, Mary Lou Gardner joined me to offer up her business advice for those who wanna grow in their careers and for companies looking to persevere through challenging times. I'll let Mary Lou tell her story, but she has some awesome experiences to share from her time at CVS and now in her current role as an associate partner at Infosys Consulting. Plus, I turned this entire episode into basically a one-on-one case study for all of us to learn from. So tune in for her wisdom on growing your career and strengthening businesses of all types. Enjoy the episode. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Mary Lou, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So for you, I wanted to start in the early days before I get into my main question. I want to hear a little bit about who Mary Lou was when you were younger. Like, what kind of things were you doing back then? What was your first job? Tell me a bit about you. So my first job was right out of undergraduate school. So I studied psychology, political science, and sociology. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a counselor or a lawyer. And took my LSATs, did really well, but then said, okay, well, let's just go ahead and see how the counseling goes first. And so I got a job as a residence counselor at a university with the thought that if I work for a university, I could go back to graduate school for free. So mm-hmm. it was kind of a selfish and then testing the waters. I learned after about six months that my personality is the type that I can't really separate my emotions from a situation. 
and said, okay, well, psychology isn't going to be the path forward, but I really thought applying psychology to business would make a lot of sense for me. So uh, I got another job at a university so I could, you know, I worked more on the practical side, administrative side, so I could go back to school and um, study industrial psychology and more on organizational development and strategy and more practical applied psychology approaches to business. Wow. That's a smart pivot back then. I mean, to be younger and already have a pivot idea to be like, well, I don't really like that, but here's how I can still use it. I was at least glad I could use something from the first initial investment, but I I just knew very early on it was not going to be a a good choice. So uh, right out of my graduate studies, the program itself kind of fell apart at the very end. It was a pilot study program. And I was in an externship at AT AT&T. And that's when I first got involved with really working in kind of the CPG side of the business, right? And understanding that side of the business. And then I had several jobs in my early career that was all organizational development, change management, and a lot of kind of business consulting, professional development type of roles um, that ultimately led me to uh, CVS Pharmacy, where I spent a good part of my career. But that was the next pivot in my career. So tell me a bit about CVS. What were you doing there? So I started there in their um, organizational development and training department, but I got put on a project my very first day in the merchandising space. So they were building the store of the future at the time. And I was brought in as a consultant, more on the training and the service side of the equation. And there was a team of people that had been taken out of their jobs, the kind of the best of the best at CVS, and were asked to develop this concept. And I quickly fell in love with the world of merchandising. And so I actually went to the VP of merchandising at the time and said, I think I could be a merchant. And he said to me, I don't think so. You're an HR person. And I said, you know, just watch me. I'm going to become a merchant. And so I studied and kind of learned that side of the business pretty quick and made that transition over to merchandising and then worked my way up at CVS in a number of roles in the merchandising category management space. Also spent some time in the inventory management space. And my career there was incredibly rewarding and also just gave me such a wealth of knowledge because I was pulled out several times because of my strength in kind of project management to run these key transformation initiatives. So I really got to learn supply chain. I really got to learn inventory management. And I was playing kind of an internal consulting role which, you know, really helped me in where I am now. But I don't think I realized it at the time. I just realized I was being asked to do something and I you know, learned a lot and it was great. But I always wanted to go back to merchandising. And yeah, so it was fabulous. I would always tell anybody, if you ever get a chance when you're working for a company and somebody asks you to work on a project that you don't really want to do, you want to stay in the job you're at, go do it because you'll learn something that that you never would have learned before. And it rounds out your experience. It makes you incredibly marketable. Yeah, that's amazing. So, okay, your pivots, you make your pivots sound a little too easy. You're like, well, I was told that I might not be able to be a merchandiser. And I said, I'm going to go do it. Oh, no, it didn't happen overnight. <laughs> yeah. Like, what did that look like for anyone who maybe is in a current role and they're like, I don't want to get stuck here forever. Like, what were you doing to try and move yourself in the direction of merchandising? So what I did was I um, first had to 
kind of write up what the job descriptions were, what the competencies are. Took some time to interview people in those roles to really truly understand the job. And then asked for opportunities outside of my day job to shadow people to really start to learn it and kind of study the roles. So when they finally put me in a role, I felt like I was ready for it. And it, I mean, just that studying and really defining it and being able to present my business case back to why I think I could be a good fit was here are all the transferable skills. Here's the competencies. Here's what I've done to develop it. Here's what I still know are my gaps. But in order to fill those gaps, I actually need to get into the role, right? <laughs> and do it. Mm-hmm. So that was my business case and argument for the role. It didn't, it didn't happen overnight. It was a several asks at the table <laughs> to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's always just fun thinking about how to navigate within a company and hop around levels. I know back when I was at Google, it was so hard to get outside the ladder. Like when you are in finance, it's like kind of hard to become a PM. And when you're a PM, it's kind of hard to get into like the engineering org. And so always thinking of like the strategies, I like the way of, I guess that's kind of like back forecasting, like here's where I want to be and here's the different credentials I need to get that job. And what can I do to try and get to that role? I love that mindset. What I also tried to do was ask certain individuals throughout the organization that work in that space to mentor me. Mm-hmm. And so if I you know, was sitting in on a meeting and I saw something happening and I didn't quite understand it, I'd go back with my list of questions to say, you know, given this business scenario, is this how you would have handled it? Why did this person handle it that way? You know, what is the norm? So just really try to, to learn it from a very practical way. Because in many organizations, you're right, you get pigeonholed in a spot. And unless mm-hmm. you make that happen for yourself, People aren't going to all of a sudden say, oh, wow, Stephanie, you'd be a great category manager. Yeah, completely agree. So you kind of took on this consultant role while you were navigating through CVS and other places. What drew you to Infosys? Well, again, that was a there was a further journey. So when I left uh, CVS and I went, I went to the consulting side of the business for a year and more on the CPG side of the equation. Um, So I was working with a smaller boutique uh, firm and we worked with a lot of companies like Johnson & Johnson and Bosch & Lomb and Ricola. So on the CPG side, everything from new market entry to, you know, trying to understand how to launch a product within a particular retailer. I did that for a year and then went back to the retail merchandising world. And I went to Fred's Pharmacy, which was a Fairly small regional pharmacy chain. I say that we were 700 plus stores. So it wasn't that small, but, you know, small compared to yeah. CBS pharmacy. And I went and worked there for a few years and started in strategy, helping them put together their kind of turnaround strategy at the time. And then it ended up as the chief marketing officer. That company um, was in financial trouble when I went there. And I knew that, and I was hoping that we would get in, you know, it would turn around be more successful. And that didn't didn't end up there. A venture capitalist group got involved and ultimately you know, took the company apart. And so all the entire executive team was let go. And I knew I still wanted to work. I wasn't done working. I didn't necessarily have to work, but I really wanted to do something. But I took the summer up, came up to Maine, did a lot of reading, a lot of downtime, realize that you can only read so much. <laughs> well, what were you reading? Maybe that's the real question oh, here. Anything and everything I get my hand on, you know, okay. kind of summertime reading to, you know, whoever wrote the latest and greatest, you know, way to be successful in business and you know, negotiating yeah. and that type of stuff. But 
I was on my way back to Tennessee at the time. I had a home there and got a ping on LinkedIn from this gentleman, Ken Berry, who I now work for. And uh, he was at emphasis. And he said, we have this opportunity in Vancouver, British Columbia, to um, work with a client, a retail grocery chain. And um, they're in the middle of this really large transformation effort. And we need somebody with your experience in merchandising and inventory management and supply chain. And I said, well, it sounds great, but let me just dip my toes in the water. I'll come in as a subcontractor. And that was four years ago. I, you know, subconned for them for probably a year and a half, almost two years, and then joined the company as a full-time associate partner. Well, okay. So what does Infosys do for anyone who doesn't know? So, yeah. So Infosys is an interesting company. It's um, out of India, but we have offices in Europe and offices in the United States and South America, very large tech and consulting firm. So I work on the consulting side of the business. Emphasis Limited is more on the technical side of the business. So really the magic for Emphasis is that a lot of times a company is either just a tech company that provides a lot of technical services and comes in and does implementation. And they have to partner with another business consulting firm that brings that thought leadership. We have both. And so what happens is we'll be doing a large scale transformation in, a, in an organization where they're, for example, one of the projects I'm working on is they're transforming their entire merchandising organization and supply chain enabled by a very large um, implementation of Blue Yonder. So I bring the expertise of Blue Yonder and all the business process and you know best practices to the table. And then the technical side brings how to implement it. And then we come together. And we go through that transformation effort. So it's you don't have to be a technical person. You just have to know how that technology needs to enable the business. Somebody else can go off and build it. So, hmm. so I understand how it should work, not yeah. how it works. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. We actually had um, Blue Yonder on the show. Very fun crew. And hearing about what they were doing, I was like, wow, no wonder you guys are where you are and you're blowing up the way that you are. So. Tell me about some of the maybe the most interesting projects that you can share that you're working on right now, just so people can kind of conceptualize like what Infosys is doing. Sure. So that project that I was just mentioning is mm-hmm. one of my very interesting projects because it, it's going across the spectrum of supply planning, demand planning, visual merchandising, category management, enterprise planning. So it's everything. If you think of everything that would happen in a retail organization, eventually we're touching it and transforming it. So for a company to take that on that kind of commitment means that, you know, they're very committed to growth. They're very committed to becoming relevant and keeping up with the paces. And so that's been a lot of fun and they're a great, great client to work with. So I really enjoyed that project. And then I have other projects that we're doing a micro fulfillment center implementation. And it's a really, it's a greenfield implementation for this organization because they didn't have, they have warehouses, but they didn't know anything about micro-fulfillment. So I'm the lead, but I've got this expert on micro-fulfillment strategy and how to implementation. And so I'm learning along with the team because we've got this expert who knows everything and we're building a a new capability for emphasis to take forward. Cool. Okay. But we do a variety of different things. You know, we did an automation project for, you know, to, you know, to implement bots at a company to automate a lot of and streamline their processes to free up people to be able to focus on more value add activities. So that was 
a lot of fun to do the, we just did the assessment work initially. Then we worked with this one, one of my same clients that it was standing up a standalone restaurant next to a grocery store for the first time. And so mm -hmm. we, you know, working with them on how to do that and, you know, what is the POS system that you need? What are the processes that you need? And, you know, what's the new latest, greatest technology? And so we'll do a lot of those assessments for them and make sure that particularly if it's complete white space for them that they've never played in. Yeah. Okay. So lots of interesting things, I'm sure. I mean, it just sounds like you really get a glimpse into every aspect of commerce, which I mean, is amazing. Let's talk about your, your favorite project A that you mentioned where you're like, we're doing everything across the spectrum of supply demand, everything. Maybe just centering in on each piece of that. So we all can kind of like learn with you on what are you seeing? Maybe first from like, the inventory and supply piece, like what are some nuggets that you're learning that you would pass on to another large organization thinking about doing a transformation like this? In that particular space, it's probably the most challenging time in the industry ever, right? So if you didn't have good forecasting systems, even if you had the best forecasting systems, by the way, you could never have predicted what was going to happen. You couldn't predict COVID. You couldn't predict the backup in the ports in China. You couldn't predict the war in Ukraine and the disruption and, you know, in a lot of the grains and, you know, other things that they were exporting, you couldn't predict it, but with better predictive analytics, you sure as heck would be in better space than you are today. Luckily, this company had already embarked on that pre-COVID, had the Blue Yonder system up and running. And so when things exploded and blew out everyone's demand signals, at least we were able to scrub that and go back and see what the new steady state should look like. So in the whole world of planning and demand planning and supply planning, for me, the most interesting thing is that the customer is continuing to evolve. And so having a system that is enabled with using predictive analytics to really be able to be in front of that customer change rather than just looking at the historicals of what's happened in the past, what happened a year ago, what happened a year ago isn't going to happen in the next month. So being much more recent and really understanding what happened last week and the week before and the week before to say, okay, this is what's going to happen in the next few weeks. That part of that project or any project that I'm working on in that space, to me, I would recommend to any retailer, whether it's, you know, e-com or it's brick and mortar, that's a place I think people should be investing in and really understanding because you really they need to be taking a consumer centric approach now rather than the old approach of, you know, it was a CPG company shipping to the retail company and, you know, be in our store and our customer would come in. The customer is at the center of that now and making the decisions every day about where they're going to go. They're, you know, the marketplace is open. They can go just about anywhere to get what they want. And brick and mortar is one, still one important piece of it, but it's, you know, even the CPG companies are now sell, not just selling a brick and mortar, but they're selling everywhere. They're doing their own direct to consumer. So you have to be able to be ahead of it from a planning perspective. So the planning space is one that and I think is probably the most important right now, regardless of what, you know, format you're, you know, delivering your product or brand to the market. Yeah. Are there any unique maybe variables, data points that you see these companies leveraging to be able to give them a better forecast? Because I mean, whenever I've seen people building out models, it's so easy to let the past influence the future. And that's how you're even building out your models half the time is like letting history just kind of like, you know, project it into the future. So how like, what are you looking at today? 
the models need to be tighter in and more recent, right? I mean, the old models used to go back six months, they'd go mm-hmm. back 12 months, they'd look at those trends and the trends are so changing so significantly. I know, I mean, a lot of the online retailers are just looking at people's search history, right? You know, how many times have they looked at a product? What's their propensity if they buy this project to buy another product? So building those type of algorithms to start to predict demand. It's very, it's very difficult in this particular moment because there'll be another surge of COVID and then things will change again. And the biggest thing for us right now is getting that the more recent data and then being able to take that and say, okay, these units were doing X amount and we we're seeing this, we're seeing this. And now we've seen a dramatic change in consumer behavior in the last six weeks. And that's due to something. They're responding to something. They're responding to something in the marketplace that is driving people to certain skincare brands or something that's happening, you know, in, in the whole healthcare space, whatever it is, whatever the news is, whatever the, you know, as you know, with the, every single day you turn on and you hear about inflation, 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 right? Well, consumers respond to that and their, their behavior changes in discretionary items. So you have to say, okay, here are my product attributes. Are these discretionary or are they not discretionary? If they're discretionary, and I'm starting to very quickly see a drop, you know, I've got to predict that and stop building my inventory on those items because I'm going to end up like a lot of the fashion retailers did with a bunch of product that they didn't sell. Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. I'm sure you're able to tap into some of your psychology, you know, mindset to be able to be like, here's what I think is happening here. I mean, do you find yourself kind of going back? Yeah, well, I just, I remember years ago before we even people were even really talking about it, but it was okay. So it's like the ball of shampoo or the toothpaste or, you know, people would stockpile those or, you know, you throw out the toothpaste when it's like halfway done. Cause I just want a new fresh one. I don't want you know, mm-hmm. the mess. People stop doing that. And that, that psychology of the shopper is that I need to stretch every dime because I'm spending over $5 a gallon for fuel to just get to my job. So I want to be able to have some money in my bank at the end of the day. And, you know, people are getting more and more concerned about the recession. So certain discretionary items like that or personal care items that they can use the last drop of shampoo rather than, you know, buy it when it's half full. All of that behavior changes and you can go back in history and see certain categories during inflationary times and during recession get hit very hard where other ones survive because, you know, you need milk, you need eggs, you need, well, some people do, but, you know, some people don't like them. <laughs> yeah. When you're seeing this behavior shifting in real time, how much of it is the client just adjusting, you know, their inventory and forecasts and changing that? Or how much are they maybe adjusting their language around the product to make it seem like this is something, you know, that you need even in hard times? Yeah, so I do think that brands need to be very cognizant of that when they're thinking about their brand and how it's going to survive in the next six months, 12 months, 18 months. They should be thinking about their brand positioning and how does that brand 
position well in an inflationary possible recession, right? And is it going to survive or is the message need to be somewhat different to make the consumer feel like they really do need that product, right? So hopefully all the smart marketing people are sitting in their rooms thinking about what's next for my particular brand or how can I take that brand message and tie it into a you know, the things that are that are so important, you know, those the social consciousness, the sustainability messages, and kind of reposition some brands in the marketplace that in order to, you know, save them mm-hmm. if they can be saved at this point. It's a mission critical at this point because there are way too many choices. You know, the brand proliferation has it's almost hard sometimes to say, oh, I want to try something new. I want to try a new facial wash or a hand soap. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard. Where do I start these days? Because what's the big point of differentiation? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Looking for a new product in any of those categories. Yeah. Not too, not too fun. I just stick yeah. with my old tried and true. Yeah. Or like you said, how do you develop a brand message that you're going to remember that you will say, I'm just going to actually stick with them for a long time. I have no need to try anything else because I know these, you know, five pieces about it that give me some brand loyalty. It checks all my boxes, right? Mm-hmm. So back to your favorite project. So we are talked about inventory, supply, demand. What other pieces are you working on right now? So the other piece is around the visual merchandising and display and um, assortment optimization. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that retailers need to do right now in particular, brick and mortar, is to really understand, do I need to have all these products on my shelf? What is the profitability per square inch of each one of these items? How important are these items to my customer? So how important are they in that decision? You know, when I come in, particularly now as that decision tree is changing a little bit and I'm going to be buying less, what should I keep on my shelf to meet my customer's needs and not end up in a big markdown situation on on the back end? In the grocery space, they have to be really careful because a lot of those are short dated products. In the fashion world, when we were all hearing about it, we're hearing about Target, we're hearing about Walmart, we're hearing about all of the the big brands being stuck with a lot of inventory and marking it down and having pretty serious margin impact because everything got stranded and came and got shipped here and that fashion season was over. So then, you know, they have to be thinking about what do I do with that product? I'm sure you know this, but in the fashion industry at the end, a lot of that stuff ends up in a landfill. And so, you know, how can they be more creative in their messaging and, you know, what is the most sustainable approach? Where do you send it in the marketplace? Where do you send it in the world where there may be a need Um, and start getting more creative, taking less markdowns, but being more proactive in protecting their brand and their brand equity in a situation like that? Um, Because, you know, a lot of the retailers, you know, their stocks took a nosedive when they started saying they had a 25% percent reduction in margin rate because of markdowns, labor costs, fuel costs. You know, it's 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 not painting a pretty picture for retail brick and mortar, at least at the moment. Yeah. So when it comes to the visual merchandising piece, what are you all doing around that? Like what, what kind of exciting things are you implementing? So we're trying to, we're still halfway through this project, but putting in an assortment optimization tool that will tell us by store the right product to have on the shelf to meet all the customer demands, you know, looking at the demographics, looking at the volume, looking at, is it more of a discount 
um, you know, people that are much more price conscious in that particular area, or are they looking, or is it a different area where they might be looking for some more natural, organic, or higher end product? So we're trying to customize the assortment by store, leverage the models to make sure that we're not carrying too much of anything at any given time. And then within the space that's created, what other white space opportunities are there that they might not be playing in that could be brought in to make it a more holistic experience? And then when you're thinking about, you know, in this particular client, we're also doing that the micro fulfillment and we're really trying to broaden the assortment and depth and breadth of op offering for that customer. So just because the product might not be available at their particular store, they can still get that product, you know, through our kind of e-commerce micro fulfillment model. You know, you get it there fast, you get it there fresh, you know, all the things that are so important in this world. We have no patience anymore to wait for more than two days for something to be delivered. And my groceries should be delivered in two hours, right? You wouldn't have thought that you could get your groceries delivered to you in two hours, you know, five yeah. years ago. And now it's an expectation mm -hmm. of the customer. So we're working really hard to partner the in-store assortment with e-commerce assortment using those tools to meet all the customer's needs. Yeah, that's a lot of touch points. I'm sure you have to have a good tech stack to make all that work. What are maybe some of your favorite tools, technologies that you're using to make some of these pieces all talk to each other? Well, so this, this particular retailer is doing the largest bomb of Blue Yonder that Blue Yonder has ever done. So we're using a lot of Blue Yonder tools. And I don't know on the e-commerce side, there's some new work that they're doing on the e-commerce side as well. And then in the micro fulfillment center, it's a domatic platform that's running all the, the robotics and automation and predictive of what's going to be coming through there. You know, so we make sure we've got the right product in the fulfillment center for those orders as well. So I know that technology, I'm just not remembering the technology that they're using on the e-com side. Cool. Okay. So I want to hear maybe who do you watch in the market that's doing things well? I mean, we of course hear about all, you know, the retailers right now who are struggling and inventory issues and closing down and declaring bankruptcy? Like, who are you watching that you think is like doing a good job that maybe you're pulling in some insights into the companies that you're working with? You know, it was interesting because people were watching Target and I was watching Target like leading into COVID, like as COVID exploded, they were one of the first ones to react and the first ones to do a really good job about letting their customers understand you know, the curbside pickup and the delivery. And they, you know, they, they did a really good job and they were also really playing up their loyalty program. And then Walmart came around, you know, behind them. They were a little bit slow on the uptake, but, you know, they started to try to compete with Amazon with the loyalty program and pick up in store. But they were a little late to the game, surprisingly, but for Walmart. But interesting enough, you know, you watch them and people, you're thinking, okay, we got to follow that. But they miss, still missed the mark on the inventory side and both of them, had pretty bad earnings. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, you know, where I've been really, really watching what's happening is in the marketplace is, is rather than brick and mortar, I, I just think about where I can get products that I could never get before, where I could just type it in. And now I've got 14 options, right? I've got all of these, you know, marketplace options that you don't even realize sometimes there are a spinoff from Walmart or a spinoff from Target. And they've created this other marketplace out there for me to get product that I would never have been able to access. I mean, Amazon, of course, is, I'm always curious as what's on there. And I was actually looking for Nest fragrance the other day. And 
I Googled it thinking I was going to have to order it directly from Nest. And I wanted a particular hand soap. And the first thing that came up was Amazon. And I thought, you know, Nest would never have been on Amazon a few years ago. You know, it was one of those brands and like Lancome would never have been on Amazon. And it's just the whole marketplace exploding. It's like, how do you figure that out? One of the things I've been talking to a lot of my retail partners about is, you know, the things that are so challenging for them with the increased costs, the labor costs and the cost of fuel, transportation. How do you start thinking about almost partnering with your competition on last mile delivery and, you know, getting, you know, competing with the marketplace to be able to do the same thing, leveraging your brick and mortar inventory. So we're looking there for to figure out opportunities to bring back to help brick and mortar still survive. Because e-commerce was 5% of the sales of a lot of the big brick and mortar stores. And it's now something like 36, pushing towards 40. Two years from now, it, you know, it could be the reverse. But if they can leverage those stores as little fulfillment centers or, or and or, you know, have some type of partnerships either with their own competition or with other 3PL providers to be able to get product and create marketplace opportunities right out, out of their stores, um, I think they'll be successful. So I'm watching to see who's going to do that next because they all have to be thinking about it. Yeah. They've got all this real estate. How do I make it more productive? Mm -hmm. So I want to hear an example of like someone working with their competitor I'm still trying to wrap my head around like, what exactly would that look like? So do you have any companies that you can use to kind of like highlight exactly like the thesis you're talking about? Walmart is doing some delivery for some of its, wouldn't be like a direct mass competitor, but mm -hmm. people that still compete in the same space. So there's warehousing and then there's delivery. So people are leveraging their big transportation network. It makes Walmart's network more productive and it makes, and this is public knowledge, I've sort of read mm -hmm. it so we can say this, it's not my yeah. client. It makes their you know, transportation more productive and it makes it more productive for the smaller independent stores. So it's kind of, you're competing, they're still competing with one another for that customer, but you're also saying we need synergies and we need to reduce costs if we're all gonna survive because competition is healthy, right? Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. So not really becoming, not becoming a product within Walmart, like a SKU, they're just tapping into their systems. But then what's Walmart get out of it? Like, why would they want to say yes to them? So like if they're filling a truck and a full truck is much more productive than a three quarter filled truck. And so they make that route more efficient. And obviously the party that they're delivering to is paying them to deliver. So they increase mm -hmm. the efficiency of their route. They expand the operating margin on that particular delivery. And so it's just more efficient for their entire trans transportation system. Mm -hmm. And it works for, you know, the smaller people that it's very, the smaller retails where it's very hard actually for them to survive, you know, tr yep. the transportation costs are, we are starting to come close to be putting some people out of business. Yeah. It seems like there needs to be a company that organizes all that for you. Cause it seems like it'd be all these one-off partnerships I would just want to be able to log onto a platform and say, yes, I want to be a part of Walmart's fulfillment network. Let me leverage their trucks and call it. Well, I guess it's just coming soon. <laughs> I know. We will find whoever starts that company or if I just gave them that idea, let me know. <laughs> like I said, you get to hear so many things that are going on in the industry. What do you think about all the trends right now? 
around, you know, metaverse, NFTs. I mean, it sounds like there's so much infrastructure that just needs to be built at a foundational level. Do you have time to even look at these other things going on? So the tech side of the business is talking about it all the time, right? Mm -hmm. So we we hear in, you know, we were just um, working on a kind of trends in the industry and then trends in the retail industry for a large retailer and what are all the enablers and you know what's all the stuff that's happening from blockchain to metaverse to, i mean it, the language is changing constantly right mm-hmm. our infosys limited team is always working looking for new technologies we have some of our own proprietary technologies you know there's just that's what we do on that side my side of the equation is more about you bring me a problem statement or you know we identify some problem statements within the companies that we consult for, and then we go over to Limited and say, what's the solution? Then we go back together. It's changing so rapidly that I feel like every six months, we're talking about something different. Mm-hmm. You know, six months ago, it was like every conversation was blockchain. And right now, every conversation is metaverse. And then what's it going to be, you know, in two months? It's very, it's actually very funny to me because, you know, it feels like for the longest time, technology was fairly stagnant. And now it feels like it, it's changing so fast that it's almost not worth investing, you know, Yeah, because it's just going to change again. Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree that it's good to maybe wait and pause and kind of see what's happening. But of course, early movers can maybe have a good advantage with something. A really good example is virtual reality, right? So everyone was saying like that, that's going to be the next big thing. And people are going mm-hmm. to have virtual reality experiences in retail. And it's just not practical. Yeah. Cost isn't practical. The consumer coming into a retail store spends, you know, on average 15 minutes in the store unless they're doing a very large grocery shopping. But in most retailers, you're not having, you don't have the time, you know, to get involved in a virtual reality experience. And I know a lot of the beauty companies have, you know, tried to do the, you know, sit there and you can do a virtual makeover. And I don't know, there was a lot of hype there and I just don't see it coming to to life in, at least in brick and mortar. And the one area that I think, I'm watching closely is if you look at, you know, the past decade or so, it feels like a lot of brands kind of got burned by the platforms that they're relying on where, you know, they're relying heavily on the Facebooks and all these, and they went in building based off a certain amount of rules that they kind of thought, okay, this is what this platform's about or Google or whatever. And then a lot of those just kind of got changed really abruptly and businesses all started to crumble. And so the one interesting thing that I heard recently was around like having, when it comes to Web3 or blockchain, is having these platforms pop up that have rules that are built from the beginning that can't be changed. And so you can actually go in there as a brand and know what are the rules of this platform. And it's not going to change in a year after I've built my whole, you know, marketing budget around these rules. So that was one thing that was kind of interesting to me where I'm like, I think a lot of, especially companies who, you know, relied on paid advertising for them to just quickly change or, oh, cookies are changing, like all the things that change quickly that just fold the business. I think it'll be a nice way to have predictability when it comes to marketplaces and platforms that actually have like built-in rules from the beginning that can't just be like changed at the drop of a hat. That was one thing I think is interesting in the space to watch. The other is just how quickly some of these platforms have not just the rules of engagement from a marketing perspective, but just how quickly people are coming in and out of them and engaging and interacting with them. And you know, something can happen that all of a sudden brings down that platform because somebody gets involved with the the platform and there's just all this negativity around the platform Mm -hmm. itself. 
And all of a sudden the consumer sentiment there is, you know, it's pulling it away or a subset of the consumers that your brand might've been, you know, very appealing to, they're no longer even seeing your advertising because they've moved on to the next platform. So it's being agile enough to understand that and be able to move with it. Yeah. I like it. So I like to ask this question sometimes, and I think you'll have maybe an interesting answer. What's maybe a contrarian bet or like viewpoint you have right now in the world of like retail? One of the only thing that I can tell you that I did postulate with somebody one day was what are gas stations going to look like in the future? Okay. What are they going to look like? Well, hopefully someday there's no gas stations. So we were having a brainstorming session. What happens to all that? Because there's still convenient places to stop and you have to have a place if, if we someday are all electric, who knows, but if we are, convert them to charging stations, but, or people are just charging at home, then there's no need to go there. There's no need to go in and get your convenience. So what are all those little convenience stores turn into? You know, people had like internet cafes, you know, you go in, you charge, you can go in, have a coffee, you know, catch up on your internet. One person <laughs> said, oh, it'd be great. Like little wine. And I'm like, yeah, no, you, they're, they're going to get back in their car and then drive unless the car is driving itself <laughs> at that point. That's probably it will not, be. not the It'll best just be breweries and wineries. And it's like that they could become obsolete at some point. So mm-hmm. what are we thinking about? Like, who's got the best white paper or how do we sit down to a whiteboarding session and figure out what should all of those gas stations turn into and then start building that as a big opportunity. So to me, like that would be such an interesting thing if you could come up with the best idea and then Mm -hmm. go out and pitch it to all these oil companies to say, okay, well, here's a way for you to still make money. Yeah. I haven't come up with a big idea yet. I'm still working on it. Yeah. When you do come back and share with us. I like that. (laughs) Well, yeah, we had, um, the CEO of this company, Capsule, on who, you know, they're sending people like their prescriptions through the mail and they're essentially replacing pharmacies. And so we, I had that same conversation. I was like, well, what happens with the pharmacies if you never need to go in anymore? And there will be a generation that doesn't really want to go in and talk to the person anymore. Like what happens to all those places? The same kind of concept. I think there's a lot of like pockets that you need to figure out what to do with these structures, if anything. Especially if they can get them their medication, you know, within a, a day. Yeah, which they can. Yep. That's the big worry, quite frankly, for retail pharmacies. Mm-hmm. It's a real concern. I mean, it started way back with PillPack, which was a different version, but it wasn't, you know, it was, I'm going to send it to you for your month supply. I'm going to break it all up, make it very simple, but it wasn't showing up within mm-hmm. three hours or five hours. And now yep. that, you know, everything's about that immediacy, it's, it is definitely going to cut into their market share. And I'm sure it's keeping them all up at night. And they're probably having the gas station conversation. <laughs> yeah, we need some white papers, Mary Lou. Get on that in your free time. <laughs> well, this has been an awesome conversation. Very eye-opening. Thank you for going through every little detail, the projects that you're working on and yeah, highlighting some of that so other people can learn from it. Until next time, where can people learn more about you and what you're up to at Infosys? Hey, if anyone wants to reach out to me on LinkedIn and ask a question, I'm always happy to help people. Um, you know, my advice to anyone who is in a career they might want to change, just look around them, look around them and see kind of what interests them and then put together your business plan for yourself and, you know, go make it happen. I love what I'm doing. I love the company I work for. We're always looking for great talent. People could reach out to me on LinkedIn. Amazing. Thank you so much. Hey, 
listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.